Oh, man, I was like, oh, you got music in the background? I thought we was doing something new this week. Hey, play that real quick. Put, put that back on for a second. Just turn it down just a little bit. Just keep it, keep it on turn it down a little bit. Turn it up a little bit more. We're going we're gonna to make this work. Solid Rock, today I will be reading from Romans chapter 1. If you would open your Bible to... Open your Bibles, the Bible apps of Romans 1. As you do that, let me say one thing that, uh, that, that Mike said just to prepare you for next week. We are going to be doing... I was excited for, for people who, uh, to do communion each week, but I want to make sure you understand a little bit of what that means. Uh, where's John Peck? John Peck is in the back. Raise your hand, Pace. He has faithfully led the team of people when we do communion once a month who go out, they get the bread, cut that bread into small pieces so you and I get to grab it. They fill up all those juice cups and all that. So that doesn't just, even though we trust a God who's in control of everything, God does not just have us walk in and have the bread sliced and the cups filled. So there are people who do that. And John has a team in that. So I just want to say thank you. John, thank you for all the years of you doing that. Thank you. Thought I was setting you up for worthy of honor, huh? It's getting ready. But when we start doing that every week, it would be very difficult for his team to do that weekly. So what we bought is prepackaged bread and juice. Is that, oh my, is that a problem? Like, is it? Said, oh my. So, so here's why I'm telling you that. Here's why I want you to know that. The quality of bread is going to change a little bit. So we... So we're going from a nice, smooth loaf to a hard, squared crouton. <laughs> That's like an inch by inch. Now, we don't believe in transubstantiation, so we don't believe that the body of Christ is literally that. So if it tastes, it tastes nasty, trust the Lord. <laughs> because... We are doing it in memory of Jesus, all right? That's not actually Jesus. If the bread is stale, people all over the world are eating stale bread in the name of the Lord. So, so don't complain. If you complain, we got something special for you. There's a different bread. And believe me, you don't want that bread. I tasted that bread with, with Don, and we both looked at each other like, uh-oh. So... So we're going to do that starting next week. So what's going to happen is the ushers will give you, there will be a cup with a little piece of bread on the top, and you'll have to peel it back. If you have big thumbs like me, ask somebody who has small thumbs to do it for you. Because it, at least the one that I did, it took me a minute to get it. And then once I did it, I had to make sure it didn't spill out. So if you spill the juice like on your hand, just when we drink the juice together, just lick your hand, and that'll be the same as you drinking the juice. The Lord knows your heart. So... That's what's most important. The Lord knows your heart when you drink the juice. So don't feel embarrassed. It happens. We've all had to lick a little juice up, clean it up in the name of the Lord. All right, let's open up the Romans 1. If you're there, we in a series that began a couple weeks ago on Romans. We're going to jump in. I'm reading from the CSB version, Christian Standard Bible. Doing two verses today, Lord willing. Beginning in verse 16 of Romans 1, and I quote, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, at this very moment and at different hours, different times of the day today, millions of people will be preaching from your word today. There may be hundreds of thousands or even millions of people preaching from these two verses today. All in an effort to glorify you, to encourage us, and to help us continue our walk with you, to help us as, as Anne encouraged us this morning to be devoted to you, not just to belong, but to be committed, to reconsider what we devote our time to, our, our efforts to, our gifts to, our resources to, our finances to, and recalibrate if possible, if, if necessary, to worship you. That is the primary purpose of your word is to rebuke and teach and encourage and Strengthen us to help us to persevere. For if we were only given just stories that were passed down from the time Jesus rose and ascended, then we would have no idea what we believe. But we have an accurate account. And then today we have a brief moment of explanation, of confidence in the very thing that we were singing about. The very reason why we've gathered together for your glory and our good. So I pray, Lord, that if I say things that are accurate, that you would impress it upon the hearts of those who are listening, both member and non-member. And if I say anything that is inaccurate, Lord, I pray that you would have them forget that detail. For may only what is true be true in the hearts of those who belong to you. Because this is ultimately about you. Fill me with your spirit to complete this task for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. We have arrived at the theme verse of the book of Romans. In fact, this is, I would say this is the theme verse of Paul's life. If you were to read different commentaries or different people to speak on these particular verses, they would say the same thing, that these two verses set in motion the understanding of the rest of this letter. Beginning in verses 1 through 7, Paul gives us this weighty theological introduction where he reveals to us his identity and the identity behind his identity. He's a servant of Christ. He's called to be an apostle, set apart by God. So he's bringing us into this theological reality in this introduction in verses 1 through 7. He wanted to make sure that the, the church in Rome and those who would read this letter that are not the church in Rome, those of us in this room even, would have an understanding of what he's going to do, why he's here, why this is important to him. So in verses 1 through 7, he walks us through this introduction, this very theological high from Paul. But then he transitions in verses 8 through 15, and he wants to make sure that this church, even though they haven't met him yet, they've only heard of him and he's only heard of them, they are loved by him. There's a degree of affection for these people, not for any reason except they believe in Jesus Christ as well as he does. He's never met them. 
He makes that clear. And it becomes even more clear in the letter. He wants to come visit them. And so he's communicating to them this desire to be with them, this love for them, this, this, this desire to have mutual fellowship. Paul is not expecting to show up and have them be quiet and listen. He wants to be encouraged by the faith that they have. That's a big deal for someone like Paul to come to a church and say, I'm looking forward to being encouraged by you. So he transitions from this theological introduction to this, this affectionate understanding of why he's coming and what he hopes to accomplish. But then we get to 16 and 17, and this is where the whole letter shifts. The formalities are now over. They're over. The, the introduction is over. We move now from this introduction to now instruction. Now Paul wants to begin to say, because of what I've said, because of who I am, I want to walk you through what it means to live for Jesus. Or as he said in verses 5, I believe, the obedience of faith. That's his responsibility, to bring about the obedience that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Well, these two verses are the bridge from the instruction, the introduction to the instruction. They're the bridge. And he begins by stating his theme verse of the book and of his life. And he says, in summarization, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, from Jews to Greeks, from, 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 from the weak and the strong, from all the people. Paul is setting the stage for this gospel that I'm about to introduce to you. I'm not ashamed to do so. Why? Because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We're going to look at this in five parts hopefully briefly, to understand what he's saying and why this is important. Beginning with the first part of the first verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel is how he begins this transition from introduction to instruction. Now, out of all the ways that this could have begun, this phrase is amazing on many levels. First, let's look at how he built up to this phrase. Look at verse 14. He says, I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, right? So I am obligated. I talked about this last week. There's two kinds of people in the world to the Greeks, Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks thought they were the smart, the beautiful people, and the barbarians were the rest of us, minus two or three people in the room, myself included. <laughs> Hashtag myself included. So he says, I am obligated, so I'm obligated to preach this gospel to both Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Then he goes to 15, so because I'm obligated, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm desirous, like because I'm obligated to do this, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I can't wait to preach the gospel in Rome because I'm obligated. I'm obligated. Why is he obligated? God called him to be obligated, so he's excited. Why is he excited? Because he's not ashamed 
of the gospel. He's not ashamed to preach the gospel in a culture where Jews and Christians who became Jews were not liked. They were not liked. This was not a church culture. This church didn't plant down the street from seven other churches where no one cared that a church was coming up in their community. This is a church where some of the Jews were kicked out of Rome for five years. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's not embarrassed to associate with it. He's not ashamed to proclaim the gospel. He's not ashamed to disciple people so that it sustains the gospel. He's not ashamed of any of that. He's not ashamed for feeling bad about preaching the good news. He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed by that. He's not embarrassed. This is a powerful way to transition. This is a very powerful way to transition. And that statement means a lot more if we remember some of the things Paul has gone through as a result of this gospel. So by way of refreshing, you don't have to turn to these passages, let me remind you what Paul has gone through from his own words as a result of this gospel so that the phrase, for I am not ashamed, must be attached to what he's gone through before he makes that statement. You see, it's one thing when you're a new Christian. Remember, for those of us who didn't grow up in the church, remember when you became a new Christian and you were trying to save everybody, the world? Bus drivers, the cab drivers, you just were ready to share. You had John 3.16 on your shirt. You did whatever it was. You couldn't believe. You were just ready to tell people. And then over some time, that all of a sudden becomes less and less so. And you wonder, like, why why, why do you, what happened? What's changed? Why is it harder for me to tell someone about Jesus? Oh, let's, let's admire those who have the courage to do so, and let's let them do that because that's not my personality. I'm an introvert. I don't know any passages that say only those who are extroverted proclaim his grace. If you do, show me that it's probably the Jefferson Bible or the Gospel according to Barnabas. We reject that type of literature here. We reject that here. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed. He doesn't say it before he's been through anything. Listen to what he's been through. Okay, in Acts chapter 9, this is Jesus telling Ananias of this about Paul. Here's how it starts. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, this is Paul's. Let me tell you what happened. Paul was riding on a horse to go to this place called Damascus because he heard there were Christians there. He was not a Christian. He was going to lock them up, imprison them, potentially murder these people who believed in Jesus. This bright light shines, and then Paul's knocked off his horse. And Jesus says to him, why are you Paul? Paul saw, his name was Saul at the time. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, the one you persecuted. Then he tells him to go to this particular part of the town and wait for instruction. And so Paul's blind for three days. He's sitting there. and The scripture doesn't tell us what's happening to Paul, but we can imagine what he's thinking. He's probably thinking that he's going through a lot. He's going through a lot. God, in the meantime, tells Ananias this. He tells Ananias, I want you to go to Paul and lay hands on his brother. And Ananias is like, uh, nah. <laughs> Isn't this the same dude that was killing and locking up Christians, us? And you want me to go to where he is? 
It was like, I trust you, Lord, but I, nah, not that much. So here's what God says to Ananias at 915. You don't have to turn there if you did fine. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him, this is the Lord talking to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him, him, how much he must suffer for my name. That's how it begins. Now listen from Paul's own words what he suffered in Christ's name. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 12. For we are afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Perplexed is like confused. What's going on? What's happening? We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live always are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. That sounds a little poetic, and there's more. 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11. Talking to Timothy, his son in the faith. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, Purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. So now he's starting to explain a little bit more. There's persecutions. He names the cities that he's been persecuted in, and despite that, he says, I, the Lord rescued me from them all. He didn't rescue him from being persecuted. That's not what he's saying. Here's the proof of that. He says this also in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet we live, as being disciplined, yet not killed. Listen to that phrase, as being disciplined, yet not killed. When Paul says that God rescued him from them all, he's not saying he kept me from significant trial. Paul is not an American Christian. He's not saying God saved me from going through any difficulty. He's saying God never left me when the times were most difficult. 
That's what he's saying. In verse 9, he says, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see, yet we see, as disciplined, yet not killed, as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet enriching many, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He's describing his personal experiences. He's explaining to them, this is what I have felt like at times. This is what I have gone through by believing in Jesus Christ. He would later tell Timothy, for indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, this is 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What Paul is describing is, let me tell you what I've gone through, but if you want to be godly, you're going to go through something too. You're going to go through something too. There's more. He says this again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. He's comparing himself. A lot of what Paul, part of Paul's struggle was that because he suffered so much, there were people who would say things like, he's not a real apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no way. There's no way. Now, we don't have, I mean, historians may have some of that. If we look at maybe some Jewish historians like Josephus or Tacitus or some people, they may give us more of a detailed account of like some of the other apostles' lives and what they experienced and what they suffered and whatnot. We don't know that. We don't know if Peter had some of the same trials. We know he went through some things, but what Paul is saying, I, it, Paul, it's known that Paul suffers so much so that there are people going to churches that Paul went to saying he's not a real apostle. He's not a real disciple because apostles of Jesus do not suffer as much as this dude. In other words, the only reason why he's going through this stuff is because he's faking. He's an imposter. God is punishing him, and you listening to what he says. This is what Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with this reality. You're saying I'm fake because I'm suffering. Jesus didn't suffer, though, huh? What part did you miss? Here's the plane. Here's the car. There's a lot of space in between. You missed it. Suffering is a part of the gospel. Now, they didn't hear Jesus tell Ananias, I will show him he must suffer for my namesake. Paul didn't hear that either. Paul may have found that in heaven and be like, oh, that's why, Lord, that's why you did that. <laughs> but there's more. So Paul is constantly defending himself from people saying, you suffer too much. So these other people are saying they're the real apostles, they're the real teachers to listen to. He suffers too much. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. He's being sarcastic here. Because these people who were saying they were servants of Christ, they weren't suffering. Because when you teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it comes with the sacrifice and it comes with suffering. Because the true gospel of Jesus Christ means we have to go beyond our even natural inclinations. The true gospel of Jesus Christ tells us to not be afraid when we're trembling. It tells us not to be anxious when we don't know how not to be worried. It tells us to love people that we hate. There's a form of suffering in that when you preach the truth. When you preach a lie, then you, have, you say whatever you need for people to believe it, and they'll amen you to death. So he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. He says, I'm a better one. With far more labors, 
many more imprisonments. Listen to this, far worse beatings, many times near death, many times. He's choosing his words carefully. Many times near death, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Five times 40 is 200. Paul's saying, I've been whipped 195 times by the Jews. That's five times the amount Jesus was whipped. If those whips were the same, then they had bone, stone, and glass on the end that when they hit your flesh, it ripped it off. He says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. They stoned Paul, threw rocks at him, at his face, and left him for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. He's not talking about Princess Cruise lines. Okay, Paul's talking about floating on some wood for a night and a day or in a small beaten down boat with no hope at all but the Lord. He's not talking about we just had to get our paddles together and row. He's talking about I was shipwrecked. I couldn't get nowhere and didn't know where to go. He says three times this happened. I spent the night and the day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's a daily pressure on me, my concern for all of the churches. This is his resume. So when Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's after he's gone through all of this. This is a bold statement. This is a bold statement. Because for him to say, I'm not ashamed, he's saying, I'm not ashamed to be harmed, even killed, or suffer all the things that I've suffered already. Why? Because I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm obligated. I worry about the churches. He's been deceived around across the boardwalk. This is a powerful statement. Here's why this was an important statement for this church. Here's why. Because if you were a Jew that all of a sudden decided to believe in Jesus, this was the most disgusting thing these people could have done. I mean, they would have had friends and relatives like, you, what? You're walking away from the identity of God's people? Being in the family of God to follow some religious lunatic? that claim to be the Christ? Are you serious? Do you know how many moms were crying as their children told them, I'm a follower of Jesus now? How many dads said, we will disown you if you follow this Jesus? 
for those Jews to hear Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, was to give them courage in their own shame. In their own shame. See, what Paul went, what Paul went through traveled before him. People heard about this dude. For him to say, I'm not ashamed to those Jews who became Christians, was to say, you shouldn't be ashamed either. And it also said, believing in Jesus is not the easy life. It's the eternal life. It's not the easy life, though. It's not the easy life. And it's not just for Paul. It's not just only Paul's going to suffer. Yes, some of his sufferings were unique because God said, I will show him how much he must suffer. But those who believe in Jesus, if you desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 3.12, put it on your heart. You will suffer. You will suffer. Here's why it was important for the Gentiles, non-Jewish people who heard Paul say this. These people had no connection to Judaism or being one of the people in the Old Testament that were traditionally known as God's people, Israel. They have no connection. They're just anybody from the street. They're Greeks. They're Romans, whatever. Some of them were God-fearers. God-fearers were non-Jewish people who believed in Yahweh, the Jewish God. But some of them were just people that just believed the gospel in the town. They just heard the gospel preached and was like, oh, let me see what this is about. For those Gentiles... To hear Paul say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. They're hearing stuff like this. So the leader of your religion was crucified? Hold on, man. The dude that you worship was crucified like them dudes up there. And that's who you follow? You are an idiot. That's the dude, the dude who died, Jesus, the dude who died 20 years back, that's who you believe in? That's who you follow? You got to be kidding me. Even if he was a good dude, he's dead. Oh, never. Oh, he, you, he rose from the dead. <laughs> you believe Jesus rose from the dead. You are a fool. You are a fool. What we call the church then, they would have called the Jehovah's Witness of our day. You've got to be, don't come to my door, please. There they go. For them to hear Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is for them to hear, you shouldn't be either. You see, back then, they were shamed because they believed in someone who died. And he says, I'm not ashamed to proclaim this truth. I'm eager to come to Rome. Do not think Paul doesn't know what's waiting for him in Rome. I'm eager to come to Rome. Let's get it. That's why it's important for them. Here's why this phrase is important for us. Here's why it's important for us. You see, they would have been shamed for believing that Jesus died on the cross. But for us, that's not our issue. 
People do not care. They don't shame us because we believe that Jesus died. That's not what we're ashamed about. People shame us because we, we believe how he said live. That's what we're ashamed about. People don't care if you believe Jesus died. Some years back, uh, 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 we hear this all the time in music, uh, Jesus take the will. People sing that stuff, don't even believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, do you know, y'all need to listen to the Wrath and Grace radio podcast. If y'all did, shameless plug, y'all would have heard this. Do you know some of the Christmas carols that are playing in Starbucks over the Christmas season and different things that people listen to? Some of those hymns, they say real significant truths about Jesus. And people sing these things all the time and have no idea that the very words they're singing will condemn them one day. They say, no one shared the gospel with me. God's going to say, you sang it every year for 30 years. You didn't listen. You didn't listen. You see, in this culture, people don't care if we believe. Remember when Kanye West did Jesus Walks? Popular song. You know why it got popular? You know why it got blew up on the radio? You know why people played it all over the place? Because you could tell by the song and by his lifestyle that he didn't really believe it. You see, he didn't really leave it. He didn't really live it. If he would have said, Jesus walks, now this is how you lived, he would not have been the Kanye West that we know. We would never heard of him. When people say, well, I believe in Jesus, people say, okay, cool. But once they start really believing in it by the way they live, now we have a problem. To use the language of our culture today, that's your truth. Share your truth. Share your truth. The reason why this is important for us because they were tempted to be ashamed because they were called to believe in someone who died, but we're tempted to be ashamed because we're called to believe how he said live. And this challenges us. This challenges us. We can be ashamed. We can be ashamed. Let me go a step further. I want you to think about this. This may not be true for you, but I just want you to give you just something to consider. Why do you think it's difficult for you personally, for you? Why is it difficult for you to tell other people some of the things you're suffering? You're going through stuff. Why is that difficult? Think about it. Most people, even though we go to a church, don't want people to know the stuff they're going through. They're ashamed. Suffering is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Because even somehow we believe that we should be doing well. I bet you underneath that, maybe we think our suffering is because of some sinful circumstance in our lives and we don't know that. Suffering is embarrassing. And this is why they were trying to use it against Paul. Look at how he's suffering. This dude is an embarrassment. He's not an apostle. But Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed to suffer. I'm not ashamed to suffer. And neither should you be. You shouldn't be ashamed to suffer. You shouldn't be ashamed. One of the things that encouraged me just this morning significantly was to hear Warren come up here and share a word on the mic. Because I was with him in the hospital. I was there. He lost his baby. I was with him. For those of you that don't know, 
The, the second dude who came up and encouraged us lost a child six months in his wife's stomach. The church knows that. Our members know that. And he came up and gave a word of encouragement. He had tears in his eyes. Some of us had tears in our eyes because he's fighting. He's not ashamed. You see, if he were ashamed, he wouldn't want to come to church. I don't want people to know. I'm, I'm embarrassed by it. He's living proof that you don't got to be embarrassed because you suffer. Living proof. <laughs> Suffering is not embarrassing, church. Suffering is biblical. It's biblical. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. You will be. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Second part of the verse. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Think about what he's saying. I'm not ashamed to preach Christ crucified because it is the power of God for salvation, which means being saved, to everyone who believes. So here's a question that always boggles me. How does it demonstrate the power of God to kill Jesus? Why is that the power of God? God is powerful. And yet Paul is saying, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How is it the power of God to kill Jesus Christ? Jesus the Christ. Sometimes we say his name like Christ was a last name. Christ was a designation. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. How was it pow the power of God to do that? Now, we know God allowed evil to come into the world to demonstrate a greater good by sending his own son to die. Many of us, my children, can articulate that. So I get that point. But how is it the power of God, though? It's the power of God. Well, the problem is it's hard for us to understand the magnitude of Christ dying. We, we get it. And by God's grace, through his spirit, there are times we are genuinely, emotionally, spiritually affected by this truth. So we get it enough to believe it and to understand it, but it's significant. It's significant. The power of God, he sends his own son to die. I get it. I understand that. I think it's hard to see the power of God in the gospel if the power we see is only Jesus dying on the cross. If the only power of God we see is Jesus dying on the cross, then the phrase, it is the power of God, 
it's, it's we read over it. We understand it, we get it, but we keep going. If we only see it as the power of God that Christ died, then that's it, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So let's, let's zoom in and try to understand it a little bit more than just that. Let's, let's just start with this foundation. In Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, here's what it says about Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God, talking about God spoken to us by his son, Jesus. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. So he's saying he's like the, he's like the spitting image of the father is what he's saying. This is important. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, don't lose that phrase. Hold that phrase. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hold this phrase. John 1 says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Talking about Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, nothing was created that has ever been created. So hold this phrase over here. Sustaining all things by his word, and hold this phrase. All things were created through him. Hold those two phrases right there for a second. Hold these phrases. So with these two things being true, God creates humanity. Humanity disobeys God. God tells Satan who tempted Eve in Genesis 3.15. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. He tells Eve that this woman will give birth to a seed, and this seed, he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So he'll crush the authority that you have in this world, and you'll bruise his heel. So he'll crush the powers of darkness, but he will be crucified. You will have some effect. He'll die, but he'll crush the authority by his death. This is that first, this proto-evangelium, this is that first gospel. Now keep in mind, he's sending all things by his word. All things were created through him. So that happens. The rest of the Bible is now wondering who is the he that will crush this head. Then Jesus is born, and he's a human being. Jesus is born and becomes a baby, a baby. I was recently looking at an old blog. I found an old blog of old pictures of my kids, like two years old, three years old, a blog that I don't even have anymore, but I saved it in my, uh, uh, um, my favorites on, my, on my, my computer. And I just happened to see it. I said, let me see. This. And it worked, and I saw all that. I sat there for 20, 30 minutes just remembering, looking at it. even brought tears in my eyes, just different ways. I've seen, I'm taking pictures of my kids playing together. I was just watching this and thinking, wow, Jesus was a toddler. He was a toddler. He wasn't a terrible two because <laughs> he didn't sin, but he was a toddler. He had to get his diaper changed. He was a toddler. So he comes, becomes a human being, and he lives in perfect obedience. Which is, which if you stop and think about that, perfect obedience, he did everything perfectly. What does eating perfectly look like? Like, how do you, like how, what, how do you eat perfectly? What does the perfect walk look like? Everything he did was perfect. Everything he did was perfect, but he was a human being. Okay? Then he was crucified. Now, keep in mind this. He's sustaining all things. All things. And he created all things. So he created them, and he's sustaining them, keeping them afloat. This is all happening while he's on earth. We have no indication to believe that somehow, while he was on earth, this wasn't happening. 
He's sustaining all things by his word, and now he's being crucified. He takes on the full wrath of God himself. He takes on his own full wrath himself while sustaining everyone else. So while Jesus is getting whipped 39 times by the Roman soldiers, he is sustaining their lives. He's keeping them alive. While they are laying him down on the crucifixion and they are nailing the, the nails into his flesh, they are, he's keeping them alive. He's sustaining them. He's allowing them to take the nails and actively brain work to hit perfectly the nail into the flesh. He deserved the nerve endings that would cause the pain that he would experience. He's sustaining all of that stuff at the same time while he's being crucified, dying on the cross. Taking the full wrath of God and allowing the men who are responsible to live maybe decades after that. Then he rises on his own. Nobody said, Jesus, come out like he did Lazarus. He comes out on his own. And even folded his clothes, folded the sheets. I'm sorry, that's gangster when you fold the sheets. It's, he folded the sheets. They came in and they saw the sheets folded. Mind you, perfectly. They were folded. Okay. There was no slip hanging off the side like I would do it. It didn't look like my towel right here. It was perfect. With nothing sticking out. Right? He rises on his own. Then he gives his spirit. He gives his spirit. Now, remind, remember, he created all things and he's sustaining all things all at the same time. So he's died. Now he's risen. He's given his spirit to billions of people. Billions of people now are all of a sudden starting to believe in this dude. And the proof of it is they're rejecting. We're rejecting our natural inclination to be sinful. We're rejecting the very things that we took pleasure in before because we want to find pleasure in him by resisting them. Amen. So he's given all these people his spirit by sustaining all these things and creating all these things. At the same time, all this is happening. He's given us a spirit. He's putting hope in people to go against their own sensibilities. Faith goes against our own sight, our own taste, smell, hearing. It goes against all of that stuff. It says, I can't see you, but I believe you. He's done all of this stuff the whole time after creating everything and sustaining everything. Then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for these billions of people to live because they believed in me. So he's sustaining all things. He made all things. He's preparing this place for all these people. He's going to give the people rewards for all their obedience. He gets rid of death, Satan, hell. All of this stuff is now gone, and he did all of it by himself on his own. If that is not the power of God, then I don't know what is. I don't know what is. The gospel isn't just. He died on the cross. The good news extends beyond that. The power of God, he sustained all of this the whole time like it was nothing. Now, we know it's not true. He suffered. And his suffering was real. He created all things and he suffers all things. It's the power of God to kill Jesus while he's sustaining everything. By it's the power of God who created all things to become like his creation and to die like them. That's the power of God to say, I'll do that. 
I'll do that to save them. People whom God made from the dirt. He made Adam from the dirt. When you die, your bones will eventually, be, all the dust, you see the dust come out. You've seen, Indiana, you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. You know what I'm talking about. You see. The power of God is humongous for salvation, being saved. When's the last time you asked, saved from what? When's the last time you really considered saved from what? Saved from what? The wrath of God? Sure. Saved from hell? Yeah. But sometimes, even in our reformed, astute, doctrinal circles, we talk about these things as if they're separated from God himself. Hell is not a place separate from God. And wrath is not something separate from God's character. You are saved from God for God. He's saving you from himself for himself. It's not this obscure place that he's like, you know, if, like if my kids are running out in the street and I see him, I'm going to take off and run and I'm going to grab him and yank him so that he doesn't get hit by car. I'm saving my son from the street. Hell and God's wrath are not separate things that he's running to keep us from. They are a part of him. Hell was created by him. Wrath is a part of his personality. Even though the culture says God is love and love approves of everything, the scriptures say God's wrath is stored up for those who are unrighteous, those who reject Jesus Christ. Everyone says John 3.16. Everyone loves to quote that, for God so loved the world. John 3.18 said, if you do not believe, you are condemned already. You are condemned already. Read more. <laughs> Reading is fundamental. Read two more lines. <laughs> Stop. People tattoo John 3.16. Add dash 18 to that. Read more. You are condemned already. That's a part of, that's a part of what it means. We are saved from God for God. And in his own power, he made God take that penalty for us while sustaining all this stuff. At the same time, I love the exchange between Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Rome that Jesus stood before, that Pilate technically was the one who had the right to say Jesus is going to be crucified, killed. I love that exchange. When Pilate says, he says, are you the Christ? Are you a king? And Jesus says, you said it. <laughs> People, I mean, I, I, mean I, I can't wait till we go back and look at what Jesus did in his earthly life, the way he did it. Jesus was that dude. He'd be like, you said it. You said that. I was like, I, me said, they, they saying, you said that. We, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me unless it were given you from above. He looked probably, I think, dead in his eyes. said, you would have no authority over me. And I think it carried weight that Pilate was like, hey, man, I, I'm going to let the dude go. <laughs> let him go. You discipline him yourself. I'm going to let the dude go. Whatever that look was, I'm let him go. My wife had a dream, said, don't mess with this dude. Y'all take that. Take him. I'm out. 
God saving us, the power of God for salvation, the power of God to crucify his own self, his own son, his own nature, to save us from himself, from the same wrath that was, on, that was poured out on Jesus Christ. This is an important distinction, though. The verse goes on. It says, salvation to everyone who believes. This is an important statement. It says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now, this sounds like favoritism. This is actually priority. This is revelatory priority. Let me explain what I mean. Salvation, the Jews are the ones who are responsible for salvation. Let me give you just a couple verses. In John 4, 22, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus was a Jew. Salvation comes from the Jewish nation. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says this. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so it was like they come from the Jews, so it went to the Jews first. Salvation is here for you. Acts 13, 46 through 48. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first in a synagogue, talking to Jews. Since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So this is the Jews received the revelation of Jesus Christ. They received him. So they had the priority. It was like first the Jews, then the Gentiles. It's not just favoritism in a sinful sense. Oh, man. It's the salvation came from the Jewish people. So they were the first to be exposed to it, to hear it, to process it, to see if they believed. After that was done, and that was Paul's priority. Paul, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, he went in the synagogues first. Read the book of Acts. He'd go in the synagogue, he'd argue with those folks, and then he'd leave and go to the Gentiles. The Jews would argue with him. He'd be like, man, I'm, my, my, my conscience is clear. I'm shaking the dust off of my feet. I'm going to the Gentiles. That's the priority. That's the priority. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. This was significant because the Jews and the Greeks had different emphases of the gospel. See, the Jews, what they heard was, listen, the Jews didn't hear your sins are forgiven. They weren't impressed by that. And the reason why, because the Old Testament law allowed for their sins to be forgiven by animal sacrifice. So having their sins forgiven wasn't the linchpin for them. That wasn't like, oh, my sins are forgiven? Oh, that's what, okay, cool. That's not what they were thinking. What they heard, what was the gospel, the good news for them, was the one who's been prophesied that you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the Christ has come, and he's fulfilled the law. You don't have to submit to the law anymore. Christ has come to fulfill the law. Now you have to believe in him. That was the message for them. But the Gentiles didn't have that. The Greeks didn't have that. So the Jews, that was the gospel message for them. This is the son of David. This is the one that they prophesied, David prophesied about, that we've heard about. This is him. This is the dude. That's why they said, are you the Christ? 
Well, Luke 4, when he read from the scroll of Isaiah, they said, the scroll is fulfilled in your hearing. It was like, what? And they carried him to a cliff. And then they said, but somehow Jesus just walked through their midst and got away. I, I got to see how he did that when we get to heaven. Like, what did he do? He probably, I don't even want to speculate. <laughs> but that was the good news to the Jews. But to the Greeks, they didn't have all that Old Testament baggage. They weren't believers of God. So the good news for them was, you are free from the tyranny of worshiping all these false gods. The unknown God in Acts 17 that Paul talked about, he created everything. He sent his son to die and says, believe in him. You don't got to go to no more of these temples, worship these goddesses and all of that stuff. That thing is dead. Here's the good. You don't even got to go to some temple to work. Here's the good news for you. Your sins are forgiven by placing faith in Jesus Christ. But isn't he the God of the Jews? No, he's the God of you as well. He's the God of you as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Can you believe it? We went one verse today. So I guess we have to do verse 17 next week. Questions? Well, I mean, I was preaching that thing, then. No question? Amber? Yes, ma'am. Can somebody give me a water if they can? Can somebody bring me two waters? Thank you. Thank you again for your time and your sacrifice in giving us this one verse today. My privilege. So, question <laughs> for you. Yes. I'm wondering, um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is speaking from his personal experience, but obviously we don't have that now. So is there a degree of, I don't know the word, is there like for, for our experience and what we have to go off of in our length of time being a believer or what time we were even born in, how does that, how does the shame and its manifestation in our individual lives, how do we um, process that as it relates to not being ashamed of the gospel in our personal lives? Like, how does that work out? Because I can't say that I have the resume that Paul has. Mm -hmm. By God's grace, thank you. But um, is there, like, I just want to know, like, how, how do I process that? And, and is there, a, are there perspectives that can be helpful spiritually for that? Mm -hmm. Good question. So it's, 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 it's specific to you. Like, everyone's going to be different, right? So we all going to have varying degrees of things we go through. So you have a family history that you've walked through, that you've had to change certain perspectives, and now you see things differently. And there may be family who disagree with you on that, on where you're at now, how you think. So there could be a temptation to be ashamed because you think differently. But you fight that because you know what you believe to be true is true. You've tested it for yourself. You've been in a community of people. You've done all these things, and you're still learning. You're still growing. You're becoming more like Jesus, you and your husband, as a result of being here, but yet you still got to battle what others think about what you do. You know, you got certain circumstances that, you know what I'm talking about, that, that people are, don't want to talk to you because of what you believe, right? So you got to figure out how to maneuver around that 
And in that, that temptation is for you to be ashamed of that, that somehow something's wrong with you because even people who've known you for a while don't really want to talk to you. So you're battling that by continuing to believe, by continuing. So remember what we talked about? If you can't say it to them, say it to God for them, right? So now you have to pray for people that don't want to talk to you because there's a temptation to be ashamed of that, to think like, well, what's wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? Yeah, you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. So I think for each of us, we're all going to have those situations, those family members, those people, the culture we live in that will just try to shame us for believing how he said live. And we just have to continue to press through that. That's what a lot of it is. Then on the other side, it's just personal suffering. So that suffering and other things will tempt you to be ashamed will tempt you to be embarrassed. I mean, that's what essentially what they were trying to say about, y'all should be embarrassed to follow this dude. He's suffered too much. Like, there's a shame in that. No, there's no shame in that. You suffer because you believe in Jesus. I'm sorry, I don't know. Sanctification, like growing to be like Jesus, is work. It's suffering to some degree. I'm sorry, it is. It's suffering. Being, trying to resist temptation, sometimes is suffering. You ever prayed like, Lord, please help me love this person? And then your next interaction with them, they've done something to make you really want to kill them? Like you actually thought, well, you know what, man, forget it, man. I'm damaging my testimony today because you ever felt like that? And you're thinking like, man, I just prayed like, Lord, help me love this person. And then they do something that's the most unloving. You know why? Because what we prayed was, Lord, make that person more lovable. And the Lord says, nah, you act loving towards them even though they're doing things that hate you, just like you did to me. I'm showing you how much you must suffer for believing in me. And sometimes it's just we overlook offenses. We press through people who have offended us because we've offended God. So it's different, but, you know, we can talk a little bit more specific. um, about. But thank you for the question. Good question. Yes, Dina. Hold on, get the mic. I know you gangster with it, but get the mic. Good morning. Um, my name is Dina. Um, you mentioned um, John three eighteen, mm-hmm. where it talks about if you um, have not believed in Jesus, you're condemned already. And then John chapter fifteen verse sixteen talks about how he did not choose us, or we did not choose him, but he chose us to go and bear fruit, and um, etc. I believe that they can personally coexist. Mm-hmm. That we have free will to choose him, and yet he chose us. But I know some people who say, if he didn't choose, if I don't choose him but he chose me, then it's kind of not my fault. I have no responsibility in believing him. If he's going to choose me, he can choose me. And if he didn't choose me, does that make sense what I'm asking? Mm -hmm. Some people would look at that John 15, 16 to say, I have no responsibility at all in my belief in Jesus Christ. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Well, we'll definitely deal with that when we get to Romans 9. So that when we get to Romans 9, that's when we get to it. But I'll say this briefly. That that question is age old. So it's an age old question. And to be honest with you, let me just be honest. There is no really good answer for that question. Because as you stated, when you asked the question, we coexist with the belief that God does choose people to believe in him, but he holds people responsible for not believing in him. And so there's a bunch of different kind of analogies people use that everyone's running towards hell and God stops people. And 
there's no real clever way to really answer that question, so I don't try to anymore. I used to try to answer it real cleverly. The reality is, is we all believe certain things that are intentional. So we believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. How that works about God choosing people to believe in him, but yet holding people responsible for not believing him is not, is not something that the scripture really explains. So I would rather wait to get into that. Like, we can talk offline. I'd rather wait to get into that when we go through a passage, because I think he has a lot to say about that. It was a ways before we get to Romans 9, and I know you get ready to get out of here. So, um, but, I, but I think there is a sense where, you know, yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of ways I can answer that, but I just feel like no, that, there's not a good answer to that question, I believe. There's answers, but I don't think, I think it's this. God in his mercy could have allowed everyone, should have allowed everyone to experience his wrath. But the fact that he's allowing people to experience salvation eternally in him is a big deal. Not to only mention that, here's the thing. For me, the biggest linchpin about that question is this. If he didn't send Jesus to die on the cross, I think I would say that that's not fair. I think it's a safe argument to say, God, that's not fair if some people you're not. But he sent Jesus to die on the cross, though. So because he didn't have to do that. Like, we're talking about God. He could have made salvation any other way. Theologians will be like, well, he had to do it. No, he did not. God could make salvation happen however he wanted to. He did not have to say, all right, you're going to become a human being, and you're going to die on the cross. He could have figured out another way so for people to sins to be forgiven. But he didn't. He, told a very, a very, he chose a very specific and, let's be honest, horrific way that Jesus was brutalized, brutalized to die on the cross. So for me, while that question is like, wow, that's kind of, wow, that's not fair, neither was it that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So on one level, it's like, I hear what you're saying, and I wish there was a really smooth way to answer that to make people feel different, the reality is, is it's a tough one. It's a tough one. There's tough things about believing in God. Now, to the person who says, I have no responsibility in that, to do anything with that, if that's a person who doesn't go to church and doesn't do any of that stuff, then I would just pray for them. Because here's the thing, like, like you don't know if you, if you saved or not. You don't know if you're going to believe that. Sometimes, just because people don't believe right today, doesn't mean they won't believe 10 years from now, right? So you don't know that. So I, if a person never goes to church and says, oh, I can't do anything about that. But I imagine if they're using John 15, 16, they know a little bit about the Bible. If they say, well, God has to do that, and I'm not, I would just say, why are you okay with that, though? I've known people who said, well, I'm, I'm going, I mean, I'm, God, I'm not elected, so that's where I'm just doing It's like, why are you comfortable with that, though? <laughs> like, if I, if I know all this stuff and then think I'm not elected, I'm on my face. Because eternity in hell is not like, a hot summer. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like if that dude in that, the, the rich man and Lazarus story, if that dude just said, look, man, can you just put just a drop on my tongue? If he would say even that is sufficient, that would be okay, then this is not a joke. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm elected, so I'm not tripping. I'm just going, no. If you're in this, then cry out to the Lord. And be like, man, because I, I don't want the responsibility of the consequences that come when this is over. 
So, good question. Uh, we got uh, Tiana, and then we'll go back there to Shevin. Um, so, quick question. Um, yes, um, in verse 16, I'm where you were talking about, um, for it is the power of God yeah. for salvation. You mentioned, like, the power being from Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 of sustaining and being created. But then you said something about, um, like, the power not just being the cross or something like, like, what, what, you, what are you saying as far as, like, the gospel? You're saying it extends beyond... Like what? How can you summarize like what the gospel? So the is? good, the gospel is not just D Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's only a part of it, right? So there's more than that. So and there's and then depending on who you are, there's more of it. So if you're a Jew, this is this is the Messiah. He's fulfilled the Old Testament passages. This is the Christ, the Son of David, whom we've been waiting for. He's fulfilled the law. We don't have to do animal sacrifices no more. We don't have to do all these things. Now we have to just believe in him. If you're not, so that's one part. But then it's, once you do that, you believe in him. Because he died on the cross, we get to spend eternity in heaven with him. So remember when we went through Revelation? Remember the letters to the churches? It would be like, persevere to the end. Do this, conquer to the end. Whoever conquers to the end, I will give him. So there's a sense of, okay, there's work that we have to do, but we do it because we get to do it. Like God has allowed us to be some of the people who get to obey him until the end. So that's part of So the good news is not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's a good Christ died for my sin. That's a good gospel to teach my kids. But, the, but it's more than that. Even when we get to Romans 8, Paul makes it seem like the resurrection, more than that when he says Christ died on the cross. So what I mean by the power of God is not just the, good, the gospel is not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's now we get to live in obedience with him because we believe in him and he's going to let us live with him in eternity and he's going to reward us for obeying him even though we wouldn't have done it unless he gave us his spirit to do it. So we're going to get rewards for doing stuff that we wouldn't have done if he didn't place his spirit in us to help us do it. That's why they say, man, they cast their crowns at his feet. What crown is what means anything? What crown is going to matter? When you realize, like, but you, if I wouldn't have done it, if you hadn't have done it in me. So what reward, what, what's, it's like, you could take this back. I probably won't say that, though. I don't want to get that look that he gave uh, Pilate. <laughs> but what I'm, so I'm saying is the gospel, the good news, the central message of the good news is Christ died on the cross for our sins. But he also rose from the dead. If he only died and he didn't rise from the dead, we'd have a problem. You see what I'm saying? Like, then it would be like, he'd be Gandhi then. I'm serious, he'd be a great religious teacher who said this some nice stuff, but he didn't, pr didn't prove anything. Everybody dies, but since he rose from the dead, it makes what we believe to be true. So the good news is just not the crucifixion. It's the way we get to live, that we get his spirit, that we have access to the Father. So remember when in, in, in Matthew 16, they said the curtain tore in two. That curtain tore in two because that curtain blocked everyone from having being in the presence of God, but the high priest once a year. Now God is saying, now you got access to me now. Jesus said, with two or three are gathered, I'm with you. With two or three are gathered. So we could get up, we could get together and pray and trust the spirits with us. So we don't have to go to a priest, sit in a booth and be like, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned and confess my sins to the dude. I can confess my sins in the car, crying out to God on the way home, and I'm forgiven. And he hears me, that's good news. So it's not what I meant by the pot. It's not just the crucifixion. 
I think in, the, in, our, in our camp, in our reform circles, the crucifixion almost is like the only good news is dead, but it's not. It goes beyond that. The good news is when we get to be with God in eternity. We get to see Jesus. The good news is Revelation 21 and 22 when he says, I will wipe every tear from their eye. The good news is when the city, heaven comes out of God in Revelation 22, and we will see God and be with God forever. That's good news. So it's bigger than just he died. It's we live. And you're living by his grace. Good. Shagun and then uh, we have to stop at that. I'm sorry. Shagun in the back. You, I'll be here. You can come up and talk to me afterwards. If you only wanted to ask it in front of other people with selfish ambition anyway. So. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, church. Um, my name is Shagun. Um, my question, uh, Pastor, is about the beginning piece of that verse about the shame, and we talked a bit about it. And just what, what does that mean for us in terms of you know, being transparent, being uh, willing to speak about the things that we do suffer or that do bring shame? Good question. So I, I think because shame isolates. So shame does not congratulate, it isolates. In the world, the world congratulates shame, right? But for us, it's, it feels, it's like, man, we don't want anyone to know because it's, it's humbling. Condemnation does its best work when it isolates God's people. So this is why, this is why I believe when Jesus said in Luke 23, 22, he says to Peter, he says, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. He didn't say to all the disciples, he said, just you, Peter. Because he knew that Peter was the strong one. Peter was the strength of the leaders. He said, but I prayed for you that when you would, that your faith may not fail, and that when you return, you strengthen your brothers. So he isolates, isolates. And so what that does is when you feel isolated, you feel condemned, you feel alone, you begin to think you can't relate to people. You can't trust people. You don't want to open up to people. You're embarrassed about struggles you have. And it gives an appearance of Christianity that's not real. Christianity, you know how people say, uh, uh, like they hear Christians struggle with sin and they be like, yeah, but you, oh, you're a Christian. You ain't supposed to do that. It's like, okay, that's half true. But I'm a Christian because I don't want to get judged for doing that. And I'm trying not to do that. I'm forgiven for that. And I'm fighting against that. It doesn't mean we sin less. Look, faith is not sinless, but it's also not pointless. Like we're living so that we can honor the Lord. So in our interactions, in our communities, part of how we have fellowship, part of the depth of getting to know each other, part of being able to do some of those one another passages like Galatians 6.1, if, if you who are struggle with sin, you who are spiritual, restore gently. How are you going to do that if nobody knows that you're walking in anything? If we always show up and everything's sweet and everything's good and everything's fine because that's the appearance that we're supposed to give. Now, I'm not saying that people are lying or hiding. I'm just saying suffering is embarrassing. Shame is always at us. And so we're always encouraged in the New Testament by Paul specifically to like, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Like you are a co-heir with Christ. Because of that, we walk in the light. We, we're able to bring others. It doesn't mean everybody, but we bring people in the struggles that we have. We trust people, and then we find out they struggle with stuff. I mean, how many times have you been encouraged when somebody says something, and you're like, wow, I struggle with that too? 
I didn't even know that brother struggled with that. I didn't even know. I thought, you know, sometimes we think people are so focused on Sunday. They singing and praying and crying, and you think like, wow. That's why I love when Ann gets on the mic, because Ann will be like this. I was reading my Bible this week, not every day, but this one particular day. I love that about Ann, because that's real. Because she could have got up here, and you'd be like, dang, she's getting it in every day like that. Ann was like, shoot, that might have been the one good quiet time I had this week. Now, I'm not saying she said that, but that's real. That's real. We need to be real that we struggle, that we fail right? But we get back up. That's why the Bible is not a story of success. It's a story of the godliest people in it failing and still fighting to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the narrative of the Bible. Only God is faithful. Everybody else fails. David, man after my own heart, commits serious adultery and murder. I mean, people just Gideon God said, Gideon, go fight these people. He was like, nah, I ain't doing that. Look, I tell you what, if you're serious, like, make, you know, he's just like, why are you testing God? Moses tells God, I, I, I'm not good at talking, man. I don't want to do that. They said, God's anger burned. It was like, man, all right, Aaron's coming. Now go do what I said. Yeah, bro. You know, this is, we just, we, we're people who fail. But faith, faith in Jesus says we're people who get back up when we fall. And there's no shame in that. Don't get me wrong. There are certain sins that should convict us. I'm not saying we should just sin and there be no emotional consequences. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't be to the point where, one, nobody knows any of our struggles because we need each other to help each other with them. The, 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 the American church arch is individualized, right? The global church is not. We're a part of the body. There's too many one another passages in Scripture. The Bible assumes God wants us to do it together. So we should let people know, yeah, we're struggling. We're struggling. I'm not talking about when someone says, hey, man, how's your day? Well, man, look, man, lost my job. And I'm not saying, you know, it depends on where you're at. When I say, what's going on, man? How you doing? That's a statement of greeting. You, you go down south, you'll be in the elevator for 20 minutes. Yeah, man, I lost my pig. And then, uh, you know, it's just like, what? I was like, man, I just asked, how you doing? You know, it depends on where you're at. It changes. But we should let people know we shouldn't be ashamed of that because that's, and it is. And we have to fight through that. Let's just be honest. We have to fight through that. You have to fight through letting people know I failed. I failed. I'm embarrassed. Or I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I haven't read that much this week. I'm doubting God. It takes faith to do that. So, all right, I guess next week we'll do Romans 117. And, uh, and I'll try to make it work for a whole sermon. All right? Thank children's ministry, especially that class over there. Thank that class right there. We'll see you uh, next time.